We're actually going to begin uh, just a couple of verses before that in 15, verse 26. We'll read all the way through John 16, verse 15. Now, you may have come this morning expecting to finish Ecclesiastes, uh, but the Lord has other plans. Uh, I neglected to pray for the curs uh, during, our, during our pastoral prayer. Uh, they were exposed to COVID late Friday night. Uh, so keep them in your prayers. That's why they're not able to be here uh, this morning. And so uh, Pastor Kerr had already done a lot of the work and prep uh, for the end of Ecclesiastes. So we are going to take a break and, and consider this passage from John this morning. So be in prayer for them. But before we turn to our text, won't you join me in prayer one more time? Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the chance to, to study your word study you, to study and to study your spirit. Lord, bless us. Help us to see how good it is that Christ came and that he went away and how good it is that he gave us his spirit. Teach us this morning from your word. Give us ears to hear and, and hearts and minds to understand. Lord, we ask your blessing this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now from John beginning in 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we study together. Now, one of the most potent scenes in Lord of the Rings, uh, one of my favorite scenes, is in the fellowship. And it occurs when the party, the fellowship of hobbits and men, an elf and a dwarf and a wizard, they are in a mine mine that was dug out uh, a little too deep. And the dwarves that dug the mine awoke an ancient demon called a Balrog. The demon devoured all of the dwarves, and he's turned the mine really into a tomb. 
as they're running through the mines. Only Gandalf, the wizard, knows what lies before them. And as they run, one turns to ask him what it is they're running from. And in the book, Gandalf's reply is quite simple. He says, it's a Balrog, and already I am weary. Gandalf, the, the wizard, the, that great wizard, knows precisely what's coming. And he knows what must happen. So Gandalf battles the demon and the rest of the fellowship escape. But in that fight, he falls down a great chasm. And he's lost to the party, at least for a time. In the movie, Aragorn, the now de facto leader of uh, this fellowship, tells them that they've got to keep up. They've got to get up. They've got to keep going because they're still being chased, not by the demon anymore, but by the things they were originally running from. Another member says, give them a moment for pity's sake. So they weep for their lost friend for just a moment. But later, just a few scenes, they come into a woods and, and some more elves ask them what happened to Gandalf. And one can only reply that he fell to shadow. That's all that they can muster. Their grief and their sorrow at his loss is so immense they can barely stand it. We see something similar happening in our text. While Gandalf had little to no time to prepare his friends for his death, Christ is taking time now here in the upper room to prepare his apostles for his departure. You'll notice in our text that it says their hearts were filled with sorrow. Now, Christ had been teaching that he must suffer and die for a lot of his ministry. But perhaps for the first time at this Last Supper, in the context of this Passover meal, they begin to understand. They begin to realize that he's serious. And that when he leaves, their lives would no longer be the same. He's leaving and he's preparing them for his departure. But it's not hopeless. It's not a hopeless leaving. Somehow, some way, Christ tells his disciples that his going is good. So Lord willing, what we'll see this morning is how Christ's going is good. We'll look at many aspects of this text. We can't cover them all or we'd be here all day. But hopefully, we'll see how this fits together to see that his going is to our advantage and sending the Spirit to help us is really good. So we're going to take our text a bit out of order, but our focal points will be first to look at the sorrow that fills our hearts and then how good the coming of the Spirit is. And all this comes, again, in the context of this upper room, this final meeting with his disciples in this upper room discourse. So first, the sorrow, and then second, the goodness. So as we begin to look at the sorrow of the disciples, we have to notice why Christ is speaking to, to his disciples this way. We're picking up our text in the middle of the upper room discourse, really towards the end of it. But he's been spending several chapters telling them what must happen. He's been prophesying, speaking about how his church is to function without him, and they're sharing a meal. And this is all to prepare them for when he's gone. But he gives us a summary why in 16 verse 1. Christ tells us, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is his purpose, his, his thesis statement. And it's that all the church, all of God's people, will face many things. And that I know about them, that Jesus knows about them, the Father knows about them, 
already. So he's telling his disciples, he's telling us so that they won't fall away. And that word fall away in the Greek is really the word scandalized, so that they won't be scandalized by what happens when you're, so that they won't be shocked by this, this violation or this, this disregard for their, their moral code or their moral upbringing. It says, when you're put out of the synagogue, don't fall away from the faith. Don't be shocked by what's coming. Remain steadfast. When you face persecution and when people are putting believers to death, don't be surprised. These things are going to happen, and I'm telling you so that you know and you remember and you can remain steadfast. You'll be able to continue on just as if I were still with you. Think of what you know of all the Gospels and what they record of Christ's life on earth. How often does he interact with religious leaders that wanted to end his ministry? And he shields his disciples from that. How often does Christ intervene with demon-possessed people? How many times does he raise others from the dead? He was their shield. He was their protection. He was the guard that was keeping the troubles away from them. But Christ is going away. He's leaving, and now they will face, without their embodied Savior, they will face all the persecutions, all the scorn, all the contempt that he has been absorbing for them. And what's more, these people who are killing their friends or murdering people, putting them out of the synagogue, they're doing it because they think that it's a service to God. Now, I know that one of those, being put out of the synagogue, might not seem like a big deal. Certainly, murder is horrible and it's awful, but this to us doesn't seem like a big deal because if we were not in this church, we could go to another one. But for Jewish people at this time, this isn't just not being able to go to church. They're being told, you can't be part of our culture. You are not welcome in society. That's like being told, you're not Jewish anymore. It's a loss of community. It's a loss of of an identity. It's confusion at best. It's anguish. And these people that are confusing you, they think that it's service to God. These are the religious leaders. These are the people that they've looked up to through their childhood. These are the ones that are supposed to be caring for them. That's a serious, serious betrayal. And they do it because they don't know the Father. This is verse 3. They do these things because they're not believers. But Christ has said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. In other words, I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you'll remember. And when you remember, your faith can remain. Now there's a a scene in, in the movie. I'm using a lot of movies this morning. There's a scene in the movie Princess Bride, uh, and if you've seen it, you'll remember. Uh, But if you haven't seen it, it's the story of a princess and the love interest, of course. She's been captured, and he is going to rescue her. But this story is happening all in the context of a grandfather who's come to read this book, The Princess Bride, to his sick grandson. So the movie switches back and forth between the scenes of the princess and, and her rescue and scenes of the grandfather reading to the son. So the princess is being uh, shipped away to another country, and they're on the water in a boat, and she man- manages to wriggle free, and she jumps into the water, into the eel-infested water. 
and the eel is swimming straight at her as the boat's trying to turn around to get her, and it looks like the eel is about to get her, and just at that moment, switches back to the grandfather. <laughs> he goes, she doesn't get eaten by the eel. And he was so caught up in this story that he's there in bed, and he's clutching the blanket, and he kind of relaxes a little bit. He says, you, you look a little concerned. She doesn't get eaten by the eel. This is the idea of what's happening in our text. Christ is taking a moment to assure his disciples. He says, yes, I'm going to die, and yes, terrible things are going to happen, but it's going to be okay because it's going to be good that I go away. And remember these things. Remember so that you don't fall away. In verse 4, I did not say these things to you in the beginning because I was with you. As we've already mentioned, Christ has been acting as the disciples' shield, but physically he's going away, so he's not going to be there in the same sense. And in verse 5, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And why wouldn't sorrow fill their hearts? The Christ, the Messiah, the one on whom all their hopes had been laid, their friend, their teacher, their God is leaving them. He's told them they're going to be cut off from society. Many will die. So why wouldn't sorrow fill their hearts? And Christ doesn't tell them not to be sad. He doesn't tell them not to mourn. He doesn't tell them not to lament. In fact, Christ mourned with his disciples throughout his ministry. He wept at the death of Lazarus, even when he knew he would raise him. He relates to his people. He's a God who came down to us. He is a God who is near to us. He is not far off. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, what sorrow has filled your hearts? What persecution are you facing? What's going on in your life? I know that many of you are suffering and have been for some time. There are many of you facing troubles that seem bigger than you could fathom. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's the case. And I wish there was something I could say that would make it easy and make it all go away just in the snap of a finger, right? But what our text is telling us is that God is sovereign. God's design has included sending Christ to relate to us. He is not a God who is far off, but he is close. Christ came in the flesh and dwelt among us. He is not a God that demands perfection in order that we might rise up to him. He is not a God that says your suffering is meaningless. No, he is a God who offers himself as comfort. He is a God who suffered for our sins. He's a God that's with us. And even after Christ's departure, we are not alone. And that's really good. Jesus here doesn't offer them platitudes. He doesn't offer them thoughts and prayers in the way that our culture offers thoughts and prayers meaninglessly. He tells them that the helper will come. The spirit. And it's hard to understand. How could this possibly be good? Have you ever thought about that before? 
Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be face-to-face with Christ? Would you have followed him through Galilee? Would seeing Christ in his flesh, would that change something? Would it make our faith more real? Would it make our ability to do our devotions and, and our prayer life more rich and full? And, and I struggle with this. I struggle to think it would be so good to be with him, and it will, because that time is coming. But our text says that it's to our advantage that he goes away. For if he doesn't, the spirit won't come. So how could this possibly be good? He first tells us the spirit's coming. So we're going to consider that for a moment. But then we'll end with what Christ says about himself. And and somehow all this is good. So Lord willing, we'll turn to consider the goodness that Christ gives us in this passage. Christ tells us that he's going to send his spirit and that it's good that the helper is coming. Some of your translations might say comforter. Uh, So who is this spirit, this helper, this comforter? Many of you I know have heard this term before, but the word here is paraclete. This is a word that has been studied and nuanced out, and books have been written on it, uh, and it is a deep word, and it's a deep thing to try to understand the spirit. So if you are curious more about this, I have some resources I can recommend. I'm sure Pastor Kerr does as well. But the idea here of this paraclete, that's, that's a helper that's a comforter who comes in the place of another. It's a mediator of sorts that stands in place for another. It's like a substitute. And, and I know that Tom Brady is retired now and he hasn't been in New England for a couple of years, but we, te- we have this idea of a substitute that's not as good. If Tom Brady is not playing in the backup sin, you're like, oh, that's not good. Um, but that's not the case here. That's not the idea of the substitute here. It's to our advantage that the Spirit comes. It's good. In other words, the Spirit's going to pick up right where Christ left off and continue his work in the world. So when Christ goes, he'll send his Spirit, one in his stead, to continue his work. So what is that work? What's the purpose of this? Well, look back throughout the text with me. He will convict the world. He'll convict the world in three ways. First, concerning sin. Isn't that what Christ began doing as well? He comes and he teaches about the law. He says it's not just killing someone, murdering someone that's a sin. No, it's hating them that breaks the sixth commandment. It's not just physically having an affair, but it's lusting after someone that breaks the seventh commandment. Christ's first message was to repent and believe Christ convicted us of this of sin. And so that's what the Spirit continues to do in his stead. He'll also convict the world of its righteousness. In the same way that those who persecute the church will kill many people and they think they're doing it as a service to God, they'll think what they're doing is righteousness. So concerning their own righteousness, the Spirit will convict them. Isn't this where Paul comes to understand his own righteousness? He was born a Jew, a Pharisee, studied at the feet of Gamaliel as to the law blameless. He persecuted the church with great zeal. He held the cloaks at the stoning of Stephen. That was his righteousness. That was his resume as it came to righteousness apart from Christ. And what is it all to Paul? 
loss. Paul counts it all as nothing but for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, who is the source of all of our righteousness. His own righteousness is nothing. So the Spirit will convict of the world concerning righteousness and also convict the world concerning judgment. And what does this mean? This isn't a judgment against the world, but it's to convict the world of the judgments that they have made. Because here in our passage, in just a few days, or just a few hours, really, they will convict Christ, find him guilty of blasphemy. But Isaiah tells us in one of his warnings, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. When the world judges things to be evil that are good and things that are good to be evil, the Spirit will convict the world of this. This idea is not unlike a legal conviction, but it's more like the idea of exposing, of bringing to light, of convincing someone of the truth. The Spirit is a Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth, and He will bring to light the truth of all things, the truth of sin, the truth of the world's righteousness, and the truth of the judgment of the world. The Spirit does not come only to convict and to expose, but he also comes to guide us into all truth. This is his role, isn't it? Back in the first two verses that we read, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He is the spirit of truth who convicts and exposes truth. And he serves to continue to guide God's people into truth. The spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He speaks only what he hears. Just as Christ speaks only what he hears. So he's picking up right where Christ left off. And here in this passage, what a wonderful, beautiful, Trinitarian explanation of how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working and active together as one God, the one and only true God. They work in perfect covenantal union together to save and to sanctify the people of God. The Father sent the Son to be on earth physically for a time to become the perfect sacrifice. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to continue to lead God's people into that truth to declare that Christ is that sacrifice. So the Spirit also will glorify Christ for this, and he will take what is Christ's and declare it to you. Friends, what does Christ have? All that he has is from the Father, and all of God is one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all function perfectly together in a way that we cannot comprehend. But in holiness and glory and power together, they accomplish all God's purpose. So that's what the Spirit is leading God's people into. Leading people into the truth of Christ. Spirit will bear witness about Christ. So this is, in a sense, this is where Christ is telling us about himself. What does the Spirit hear and share with us and lead us into? The truth of Christ. And what is the truth? The truth is that in our passage, he's about to go to the cross. From the cross, God, the power of God will resurrect him. And then he will ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. And so, yes, it is absolutely to our advantage that he goes. Because if he doesn't leave, if he doesn't go to the cross, 
then the resurrection doesn't happen. And if Christ is not resurrected, then we are still in our sins and our trespasses, and our faith is in vain. So it is absolutely necessary that Christ leaves. It is the best thing. Christ's death and resurrection and ascension are what the whole story is about. It's what God prophesied to Adam and Eve when they were told they would have a child who would crush the serpent. It's what was promised to Abraham when he was told that he would have a seed that would bless the whole world. It's what was promised to David when God said one from his line would sit on the throne forever. The whole story is about Christ, and the Spirit continues to speak to God's people, guiding them into all truth. And the truth is that from the very beginning, God's plan was to redeem a people for himself, and it would all happen through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I had a conversation several months ago with a young man from our youth group, and he was asking about what it was like preaching on on Easter and Christmas, and he was wondering if it got boring preaching the same thing each year uh, because the the text, you you, you run through them eventually, right? I said, man, it's the same message every week. Week in, week out, we preach Christ, whether it's Christmas or Easter or today. If the truth of the gospel isn't in a sermon, then I have failed. And I know it's the same for every preacher who loves Christ and loves his word and wants the truth of that gospel to be proclaimed. And this is the message. This is the message that the Spirit leads us to. It's the same Spirit that calls you and draws you to Christ. It's the same Spirit that applies salvation to your lives and gives you faith. It's the same Spirit that works in you to sanctify you. It's the same Spirit that Christ sent into the world after his ascension. And it's the same Spirit guiding us into the truth of Christ. This is what Christ is telling us about himself. It's good that he goes because it's it's what's necessary for us. And the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ is with you. God is with you. So friends, whatever is troubling you, whatever sorrow has filled your heart, whatever you are struggling through right now, you are not alone. If you belong to God, then he is with you. And if you're not, consider how the Spirit might be calling you today. What a great comfort that is, that God is with us. That even in your lowest of loathes, in in the depths of despair, you are not alone. So we're going to come to the table in just a few minutes. It's by his spirit that we can rightly say that we will fellowship with Christ at the table. It's a mysterious thing, the way that the spirit works Christ's grace in us. The table is a sign and a seal of the promises of Christ and the benefits that he gives to us. Ultimately, those benefits are or life eternal in glory with him. And we could not be in glory with him if he did not go to the crowd, go to the cross and rise again. And that promise of life everlasting in glory with him is a great comfort because that means it's not forever. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever that thing that came into your mind as you've thought about what you're going through, whatever that thing is, it's not forever. 
as long as it might take whatever lifelong affliction you experience, it's not forever. God is with you, and it's not forever. And that is really good. So it's good that Christ went to the cross. It's good that he rose again, and it's good that we will be with him again. And that's why we preach the same message over and over, week in, week out, because it's good. It's good that Christ sent the spirit of truth to continue to lead us into that truth, that we can be reminded again and again that it's good that Christ went away. So friends, you're not alone, and it's not forever, and that's good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. We thank you that you work in our lives. We thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that you're with us. Father, we thank you for Christ and his work on the cross. So thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.